Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Frank Capello. And I'm Rivka Rivera. Riv, welcome back from holiday weekend. How was your Thanksgiving? It was a good time. We just had to eat and our dear friend set up a potluck and did most of the cooking and cleaned his place. It was perfect. It was relaxing. How about you? Mine was solid. Went to Jersey, hung out with the family, a perfectly normal Thanksgiving. Nothing <laughs> crazy to report. No no even talks of politics at the table, which is something that my family loves to do. They're like, we're going to do antipast, and then right after that, we're going to start talking about politics, and then we'll do mains. Anti-political conversation. But there was none of that this year, so there usually is. My, pe- my family really likes to get into it. Do you prepare yourself for that? Like, what is your... Like, do you prepare your, like, are you someone who goes in sort of feeling like, okay, I have to prepare myself with, I don't know, some people go in preparing their argument, preparing to have a real dialogue. Like, what is your prep for that? A little bit. Um, I have one rule with myself is that I don't bring up politics unless someone else does. And then if once someone else does and then says something, you know, that I don't agree with, then I'll, that's when I jump in. You said that. And I just have to share the thought that popped into my head. I saw a meme or like a video recently where, you know, because we both have pets and you accidentally step on a dog toy and it squeaks. Mm-hmm. And then the meme of the dog was like, you chose play. And then immediately they're like, you've chosen to play. That was <laughs> what, that's what popped into my mind is like, you're just waiting. But if it but if it comes up, you're like, so you've chosen political debate. Let's go. Yep. <laughs> that's honestly, that's exactly what the dynamic is. It's like as soon as someone says something I'm like, well, I can't let this ignorant bullshit just go uh, unaccounted for. Sure. I, yeah, I mean, I was preparing a little bit this year specifically. I, I, had a, I had a feeling that someone would bring up everything that's happening in Israel and Gaza, and I was I was a little bit mentally preparing for it, but it didn't come up. Sometimes it get really wild. I remember one year, or maybe it was Christmas, uh, one of my aunts, out of nowhere, just completely unprompted, said, I don't care what anybody says, Jesus was white. Oh, and- my God. <laughs> That is so, you got to use that in the next thing you write. It's something that it's like one of my most cherished memories. And I just, I had so much fun with that. I was like, I was like, let's unpack that. All I can say is Jesus Christ. But you and I wanted to talk a little bit about um, everything that's happening in the world right now. Not specifically what's happening in Israel and Gaza, but Hollywood's response to it. Uh, because this has been very much in the news. A number of actors, writers, Entertainment types in Hollywood have been experiencing backlash and some uh, some career backlash, like having lost work and representation over, you know, mostly pro-Palestinian statements, social media posts that uh, were then perceived or misrepresented by, you know, other people in the industry as being uh, anti-Israel or anti or anti-Semitic. Or or conflating that being anti-Israel is therefore anti-Semitic. I think that's what's happening. The conflation that if you are in opposition to what the government of Israel is doing to the genocide being enacted, if you are even Mm -hmm. using the word potentially genocide to describe the truth of what you're witnessing, then there's a conflation that that's anti-Semitic. Exactly. Um, and yes, and that's that's good that you 
pointed out that we were talking about the Israeli government specifically. But yeah, it's um, it's pretty scary. Uh, you know, a lot of people are starting to call this like the new Hollywood blacklist, referring to the blacklist of the nineteen, the late nineteen forties and nineteen fifties, in the, the height of McCarthyism and the Red Scare, and people being afraid of being labeled communists. And I've I've seen some people refer to what's happening right now as sort of like a neo McCarthyism within the context of Israel and Gaza. So. A few specific examples, and this one of them we talked about on the pod already. In mid-October, uh, one of CAA's top agents, this woman Maha Dekil, uh, stepped down from her leadership roles at the agency after she made some Instagram posts essentially calling what Israel, the Israeli government is doing in Gaza a genocide. She ended up apologizing for those posts, and it should also should note that she's you know a woman of color, so this is something that we've seen repeatedly as this has been playing out is is people of color being punished mm-hmm. for their for their statements also at CIA reportedly a group of assistants threatened to walk out over their the agency's treatment of her at the same time there were some agents who complained internally that she should be fired and then separately CIA has cut ties or fired uh, one staffer and two clients over what they call incendiary anti-israeli social media posts The other big story that I'm sure a lot of people have seen is uh, actress Melissa Barrera from the Scream franchise has been dropped from the franchise by Spyglass Media Group over her post. And then there was one uh, specific post where she was criticizing Western media. Quote, Western media only shows the Israeli side. Why do they do that? I will let you deduce that for yourself. A lot of critics have said that this is anti-Semitic, that this is that she was floating the trope that Jews control the media which I take issue with because very specifically saying Western media it feels like a pretty strong critique of, you know, yes. the way that Western hegemony shapes all of these narratives. And something that I have have noticed just in, in reading the coverage about this story is that many of these outlets, including this variety piece that I'm pulling from, like flatly calls what she has said anti-Semitic. Mm. Just in a lot, of, and I've seen that in like, I think Hollywood Reporter stories, Deadline stories, as soon as someone has received backlash for a pro-Palestine post or an, you know uh, some or a post critical of Israel, they are immediately labeled as anti-Semitic. And I just want to pause on that for one moment because obviously in our conversations about films, we're we've spoken critically about anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic tropes. And, I mean, we had that conversation, um, which maybe you heard and you did or did not agree with, about um, Maestro and the use of prosthetics on a non-Jewish actor to portray a Jewish character and how, you know, we've had extensive conversations about where these things really exist. Again, the conflation of having a anti-Israeli perspective in the face of this genocide and just having any you were allowed to disagree with a country's politics that is not anti-semitic and there is something this conflation is really concerning especially for me as a jewish person when there are real i mean obviously there's real anti-semitism that occurs that goes up in moments when you have a country that uses the symbol of judaism on their flag and that is very heavily associated for some Jews, but not all. And yeah, just that conflation is what's happening here. And I just want to say like there's real anti-Semitism occurring and it's really disturbing to see 
that terminology be weaponized. Uh, the other big example that I'm sure people have seen is that actress Susan Sarandon was dropped by her agents at United Talent Agency for speaking out at a pro-Palestine rally. So yeah, so these are just all examples about how power, especially power in the media and power in the entertainment industry, uses its influence to silence dissent from whatever the from whatever the mainstream narrative is and especially in a time like this when when people and children are still still literally dying and when it is so important now for people to use their voice to use their platform to use what any levers of power that they have access to to stop what is a genocide uh, someone posted a, a New York Times headline from October 1st, 2001. This is six days before the the invasion of Afghanistan. The New York Times headline, was, and this was about a anti-war protest in advance of the invasion, but the headline read, Marchers Oppose Waging War Against Terrorists. So that's another example of the way that this is is being framed like if you if you have any sympathy with Palestinians in Gaza if you if you even dare to discuss the conditions that led to the rise of Hamas and and the and why and not not justification but an explanation for why Hamas has come to power why Hamas has done what it did that is seen as like you're sympathizing with the terrorists you are uh, you you have no empathy for for the Israeli citizens and for what they went through on October 7th. And it's just, it's so dangerous in, in like like you're saying, this conflation in, I don't know, just making it so that people are are afraid, afraid to fucking speak out about this shit. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I think not only, it, yes, there's such deep fear in speaking out. I've seen, seen some of that affect, like particularly friends who are non-Jewish or non-Palestinian, non-Arab who are not necessarily connected in that sense to what's happening, just pull back and say things like, I just have to make some space. I just, I'm going to do more listening because they, because of this. And it's so scary. I'm like, and I've said, no, please, like, this is not actually the time. That's not what allyship should look like because you can't, we uh, we have to fight being silenced all all around you know i don't i don't mind hearing dissenting opinions from other jews and i've had you know i've had to be mindful of the framework in which i want to have those dialogues in a safe mm -hmm. way in a productive way but i do think when we make it this black and white is you know and this goes back to the question of cancel culture which i think can be there's a lot of complexity to that conversation adrian marie brown talks a lot about calling people in as opposed to canceling them and i just think how can we call people in if we if we just are too afraid to even start the dialogue like that's what scares me people are too afraid now to even start the dialogue even to your point about and i'm not saying this happened at, i'm not saying this is happening at, at your thanksgiving but just i feel this sense of like in the blacklisting is working and to some extent because you start seeing like wow people are really being penalized for sharing how they feel and we've seen a lot of people not being penalized, which I think is maybe where you were headed. Yes, I just wanted to give a couple of quick examples of the the converse, which is there have been some Hollywood types who have gone very far in the other direction in terms of their support for Israel in a way that crosses into Islamophobia or a, an endorsement of genocide in some ways. So there was Amy Schumer who had uh, posted a cartoon on her Instagram. And this was way back. This was like still mid-October, but... 
she posted a, a cartoon to her Instagram calling Gazans rapists. And then the other one was Sarah Silverman shared an Instagram post which like fully supported Israel cutting off water to Gaza. And after people po pointed out to her, they were like, hey, this is like a an endorsement of genocide. She then walked it back and said, sorry, like I was so stoned when I post this. And while that's horrible, I think just we're seeing the grace of being able to again speak in draft. I think in this age of social media, in a moment with like this deep traumatic event, we're going to see people respond in the most, you know, we're seeing our, these are human beings. Like we, again, the celebrity culture of putting everyone on this pedestal. These are not politicians. These aren't even activists. This is, you know, celebrities. And if they're reacting that way, I, I give her credit for being able to say, that's not what I meant. I take, but she's not being penalized for it the way that I yes. don't even know if I would agree with her being penalized for it. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I would agree with it either. But that's the point is that like neither Amy Schumer or Sarah Silverman have. I mean, they've they've experienced a ton of Internet outrage and online backlash. But other than that, not neither of them have lost jobs or representation. So there is clearly an imbalance. There's clearly a double standard in the way that Hollywood, the business is choosing to treat people who do not fall in line with what the with, with what the Hollywood line is. And even that, I just want to say, because obviously there's this anti-Semitic trope that Jews run Hollywood, which is, again, the thing with anti-Semitism that's so tricky is like a lot of the tropes have a half seemingly on the surface have to do with being privileged or wealthy. And, you know, that goes back to deep roots, which we can unpack another time. But that that in itself doesn't mean that it's not a harmful, horrific trope. And even in this discourse, I fear that it, it makes that trope seem even worse when that's not again what's happening this is about the united states imperial interest and the yes. powers that be aligning with that this is not about jews running media and i just want to like clarify that because that's also really that freaks me out too seeing all this happen and be like is that going to cause more anti-semitism and hatred and attacks you know absolutely and i think my analysis of the situation i think in my opinion, dispels that the anti-Semitic trope that Hollywood is run by Jews. And that's why there's the, been this backlash to these pro-Palestinian people. No, I think Hollywood is run by liberals. I think that is, in essence, what is happening here. I was reading, I mean, I, I didn't write this, but someone pointed this out in a piece that I was reading that, you know, Hollywood is has been very in lockstep over the last several years over different social issues, whether it's like the Time's Up movement, the Me Too movement, whether it's, uh, you know, rallying behind reproductive rights after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. These are very standard liberal social values. And more so than liberal, I, I should say neoliberal. And by that, I mean a political tendency that, yes, is more sympathetic to and supportive of you know, social issues like reproductive rights, like the Black Lives Matter movement. But other than that, also align themselves with entrenched power and with institutions and and essentially backing the U.S. imperial project, aligning itself with capital and capitalists, not willing to go the extra mile of questioning how political economy and economic power and military power, all of that stuff is organized and how it's used in this country. So for me, that's what I think is happening in Hollywood specifically, is that these are a bunch of neoliberals who, yes, like when it comes to supporting black lives, absolutely. But this schism that's happening right now is 
it's just outside of the the purview of like the neoliberal order and the neoliberal line is. I mean, they're they're gonna they're ba they're basically in lockstep with like the Democratic Party, and Biden still up until this point has made it very clear, you know, pretty much blank check to to the Israeli government, unwavering support, shoulder to shoulder, no daylight. So I, I for me, that's more so what is happening here. And I th and I think it's just like, you know, like reading this New York Times headline from 2001, you know, we look at this in hindsight and we're like, well, yeah, the war in Afghanistan was an absolute atrocity. The war in Iraq were an absolute atrocity. But of course, the people who were opposed to that at the time were being called terrorist sympathizers. And I just, I don't know, I feel this is just what's coming up for me right now is I just, in my own personal experience and all this and moving through all of the dialogue and horrific events of the past month, just never, I've also never felt more proud to be Jewish. Like, I just feel like I've, I've, I'm learning and I think we've talked about before radicalizing moments, like I'm learning about this has been such a radicalizing moment for so many people and in part of part for me has just been really investigating like what it means it's always been a question for me like what does it mean to be Jewish and I've learned so much about what it means to be Jewish what that ancestry of social justice is and yeah and just watching groups like Jewish Voices for Peace who have been blacklisted tremendously and just the courage of all of those multi-generational organizers who have time and time again put their bodies on the line in the past month. All right, we had that right. conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we just wanted to touch on that because it's it's been a lot of what's been in the news for the last few weeks and it intersects exactly with what we talk about here, which is, you know, the entertainment industry, movies, capitalism, everything. All right, well, let's get to our questions, our mailbag episode. We mm -hmm. did we had we had a bunch of listeners write in a bunch of questions. Thank you all so much for writing in. So our first question comes from Lane. What radicalized you both? Was there a pivotal moment? Mm, I love this question. I feel like we were just kind of talking about it a little bit too. A little bit. Um, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, I guess. Well, we've, we've talked about this a bit, and you know this, Frank, that I grew up in a very um, radical household in the sense that both my parents worked for or were writing for the CLP, the Communist Labor Party newspaper, when they met. And, you know, they had their different different backgrounds that brought them together, but they came together over a shared politic. And so that was the context into which I was born. But I would say... Yeah, you're like a legitimate red diaper baby. Yeah, a little rules. bit. Yeah, it was... I mean, it's... and I, But I also think there was also the radicalization of like just being born in, in New York and having access to so to all of that, like this moment in time, I just remember I just had a, a flash of how grateful I was that the last time I saw protests like this, we were protesting the Iraq war and that was me in high school. And it was just, you know, that was radicalizing in a different sense too. But that was a call. I was just like lucky to have that cultural radicalizing. Um, mm -hmm. And then, but then I love this question as I was thinking about it. I think that there's just moments of, um, you can be radicalized by a big situation, by a person, by hearing something. But for me, in my life, I think rock bottoms can be incredibly radicalizing. And, you know, in my experience, a rock bottom is often this moment when an illusion or a delusion that's, you know, maybe often requires an addictive behavior to maintain or uphold is smashed and broken. And so a few significant personal rock bottoms 
that were really radicalizing for me would be my food addictions, which just shattered a whole bunch of illusions about just the world. And I think that was directly relates to capitalism. And as a result of that rock bottom, my recovery and my healing, I think, was deeply radicalizing and required me to look for alternative ways of being and living. And that's definitely connected to my politics. So yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's a few. And then of course, there was bigger societal ones, such as the current moment we're in is incredibly radicalizing. How about you? That's funny. It made me think about like the smaller moments in my life, uh, which I hadn't been thinking about when I first started working for my dad at his restaurant. My dad is a restaurant owner, if, if I've never said that on this podcast. Yes, he was a petty capitalist exploiting his workers, including me. He <laughs> made me, he made me go to work for him when I was nine years old. Nine? Yeah, nine. That's yeah, so nine. young. Yeah, it's yeah, it's way illegal. too illegal. Wait to yeah, legal child labor for sure. Definitely didn't want to. He was like, "You're coming to work on Sundays," and I was like, "I just want to play with toys. Like, please, please just let me play with toys." Yeah, he put me on the register at his cheesesteak restaurant. It was the only it was the only job I could do in there that I wouldn't like hurt myself because it was like I couldn't I could work the grill, I couldn't work the fryer, so it was just the register and then occasionally pour sodas. But later, when he had an, an Italian restaurant. I remember being a busboy and my two immediate co-workers, the other busboys, were you know, were a couple of undocumented immigrants, a couple of Latino guys, Armand and Ivan. I'll never forget them. I was like 12, 13 and hanging out with these guys. And I remember learning so much about their lived experience as, you know, living undocumented in the U.S., just how careful they had to be constantly, how much sidestepping of the government they had to be constantly, you know, the fact that they they couldn't have driver's licenses. They, so they had to ride their bikes everywhere. They had, you know, fake social security cards that they paid into social security, but would never see any of that money back. And I remember just spending so much time with those guys. And that was my first sort of like, damn, this is like really like this is fucking awful. This is fucking awful. Like the hoops that these guys have to jump through just to be able to like li like live and work and, you know, raise their families and so that was a big one for me. And then, I don't know, just like watching movies. I, I glean a lot of my politics from my film habits. And like I said, Hollywood is a very liberal place. Um, so a lot of, you know, very liberal ideals. And then I think like what, you know, the, the bigger moments, you know, the Bernie 2016 campaign for sure. Uh, I think by that point I would have considered myself like more of a progressive. But I remember hearing Bernie talk about just sort of like, consolidated corporate power in it and I was like oh fuck that's what it is that's what it is that's mm. those are the words for it so that's when I started getting in, like way more into progressive politics and I was like what is democratic socialism and then it wasn't until the pandemic and just watching the global response to the pandemic where I was like okay there's some like there's like the machinery here the the, the way that this whole thing works is really fucking broken and and it, or maybe not broken maybe it's functioning as it's supposed to but it does not work and it's creating a lot of harm and devastation. So that's when I really dove into like theory and reading Marx and consuming as much leftist theory as possible. So that was when I sort of like really, really started being able to articulate uh, my politics in a more coherent way. Okay, our next one is from Marissa. What are both of your favorite movies and how would you discuss them on the podcast? Wow. I, I know we've done one of your favorite movies. Which one? Back to the Future. Oh, yes, that's right. Back to the Future. Yes, that is one of my favorite movies. Uh, you have the tattoo. I hope it is. I have the tattoo. Yes, I have the tattoo. Yes, yes, yes. Um, 
but that's not the that's not one I necessarily think of when I'm like top three favorite movies. I think like my top three on any given day would be like Boogie Nights, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Wow, um, Natural Born Killers. So wow, uh, yeah. So Willy Wonka is one that I'd really love to do on this podcast because yeah. I think there's like there's like a lot to be said about Willy Wonka, the capitalist business owner, uh, and the way his dangerous fucking factory that just puts all of these children in danger. Um, <laughs> also, the Oompa Loompas, what the fuck is going on there? Are they there? Are they there consensually? Are they, they are they being held there? Are they being compensated at all for their work? Like this, it really seems like a like a like maybe a borderline on a slave situation. So oh, I think there's we a... have to do it. There's so much. I always think about that image of them sharing the whole family sharing that one bed. Oh yeah, all the grandparents. Seer- yes, and um, you know we'll have to do it as we lead up to Timothee's. <laughs> oh yeah, Wonka. Wonka. I mean, that's gonna. I think we can do like a yeah. We'll have to do it leading up to that. I- I mean, I guess we'll have to see that. I'm terrified. I'm. I have just like such morbid curiosity around that movie. And I bet they're banking on a lot of our freaking morbid curiosity at this point to like <laughs> get the box office. That that movie could be one of the highest grossing movies of the year, or it could be a complete flop, and neither would surprise me. All right, what are what are some of your favorite movies, and how would you discuss them on the podcast? I'm. This is. I'm notoriously. <laughs> I love saying that when we were like, I'm notoriously, I'm like, amongst you. Amongst you amongst and your partner, my, uh, Honestly, m- amongst my brain and like all the, the people living it, I am terrible at favorites. Like as soon as I ask, get a favorite question, I, I, I'm i going to think of them all later, but I know I have a list somewhere. But what came to mind, one movie that really impacted me and I remember its impact deeply, this movie, Under the Skin, starring ScarJo. Did you ever see oh. it? I never have, but I, I've heard that it's very, oh, very good. Oh, my gosh. It was It's so good. And I think I've always been really into, probably because I also made a movie like this, like hybrid documentary. I wouldn't even call it documentary, but hybrid reel. Like she really went around and tried to solicit people. I think it, it takes place in Scotland. So there's oh, a mix of this weird hybrid, but it's um, also an alien story. Sorry to spoil. I mean, like that's not a spoiler, spoiler, but. She's basically this woman. It's It just said so much about the human condition. And I remember both times watching it. And I should, I want to, I hope we do it on the pod to watch it again, like just sobbing uncontrollably because it said so much about the experience of being like in a human vessel, particularly about being a woman in a human vessel. And it was just so oh, well done. It blew my mind. I love that movie. Like how women are like regularly subjected to objectification, stuff like that. Yes, but it's not, it's so well done that it's not, you don't, like, I didn't realize the impact or any of the themes. It's not like one of those movies where you're like, it was very emotional for me watching and it's super sci-fi. There's not, there's very minimal dialogue. It's like very simple story. There's a little horror in it. Yeah, I just really recommend it. I loved it. So that really impacted me, I think, in terms of what you can do with cinema. I wouldn't say that's a favorite, but I, it was really impactful. And then I guess my other one that I would really want to do on this pod, but is kind of obscure, so we just have to, people would have to be willing to watch it if they've never seen it. But the late 90s flick, or maybe early 90s, or maybe, I don't know, Trading Mom, starring Sissy Spacek and Anna Chlumsky. Okay. Did you, have you never seen it? 
No. Okay, during the pandemic, I guess you were not part of it, but I remember a few of our our virtual pod cohort we what we rewatched it because I this was also a very impactful on me as a young child. Sissy Spacek plays first of all multiple characters. I can't say they're all great, but it is quite the acting tour de force. Okay, because <laughs> essentially it's these kids who are like we hate our mom. Which I just feel like you could relate to at that age where you're like, oh my gosh, this person makes me so angry. So they literally go to the mommy market where they purchase, they try out a few new moms. And like Sissy Spacek plays all the different moms. Um, There's a clown mom. So there's clearly that, (laughs) there's clearly some kind of analysis about like the marketplace. Literally, it's a marketplace for mommies and how we relate to our parental figures in the United States. Yeah, especially considering that, you know, like raising children is often considered to be like not labor, like not a job. And, you know, the yeah. just, the entire the entire scam of of the nuclear family and the the sole breadwinner was that, you know, like, well then there will be a mom who's gonna do all of this free labor, raising the children, raising and educating and producing the next uh the next generation of workers to be exploited, and like how that is completely disregarded in the way that labor is valued, especially like parental labor and child rearing. So totally yeah, there, there's a they lot of They have there. one of the moms as like they have one of the moms they get is like the maid mom <laughs> that they just want her to pick up after them. <laughs> And then again, like the circus mom. Yeah. So that's my, that also impacted me. I'm not going to say Trading Mom is my favorite movie. (laughs) 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 But uh, that's what came to mind. All right. Next question. Gavin writes, do you think Hollywood can move away from business moguls? I ask this because I aspire to create entertainment in the future. And from my perspective, it feels like these corporate goons like David Zaslav are responsible for the decline of modern cinema, mainly the lack of original stories. Is it possible for creatives to take control of the industry soon? Um, <sighs> wow. Great fucking question, yeah. Gavin. Feel you, Gavin. <laughs> Feel you big time, Gavin. Wow. I think this is like a multifaceted question. I think... Uh, as much as like as as much attention gets paid to like the David Zaslavs or the Ted Sarandoses or the whatever whoever the CEOs or studio heads are at any given time, there is also like an entire there's like you know there's boards of directors there are shareholders there are other executives who all contribute to to how these studios or these networks or these streamers what co- sort of creative decisions they go in. So I don't like I so I don't think it's totally fair to say like it's solely the fault of like a David Zaslav because these people are just reacting to what the market is already doing I think speaking to this idea about like lack of original stories you know if it wasn't if 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 the Marvel movies weren't so bankable and the Marvel movies didn't make so much money then they would have stopped making so many Marvel movies but it's just like that's what the market rewarded so in turn we have seen you know just so much of Hollywood's energy um being poured into like these franchises or like the, the like or intellectual property i'm gonna push back a little okay because i think you don't mean to be doing it but i'm like wow you're making capitalism seem like it's like it is that charitable if you know what i mean like it's like somehow like it's because the marvel movies are so good that they're just winning the capital game i think a lot of these places just don't even give other kinds of media a try so we don't even know if it could be popular i think that's like a that's kind of the big pushback on you know again getting any form of representation for anyone or anyone working other than white men in these films 
I think it was like three this year, three percent of directors and writers were Latino. And like, but there's no evidence to say that's not because the market wants that. So I do think that there's some there's more complexity to like we also prime and prep the market. So I do think does that make sense? It it totally makes sense. And I and I that's a good pushback. And I'll clarify that I don't think I don't think the market rewards necessarily things that are good or that are like great cinema. I think I think the market and then the mar- and it's also like a negative feedback loop. It's like, you know, they put out right. more they put out more uh, superhero movies. So people pay to go see the superhero movies and they they get the money and they're like, well, I must really like the superhero movies. So let's do more of those superhero movies. Yeah. Like if they put a Barbenheimer campaign behind a Boots Riley film. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, it probably mm-hmm. do really well. I don't think they want that. But that yeah, but that's the that's the thing with like the market and the, the way that these studios operate is that they're basically risk assessment managers. Right. Like that's really like you know, from working in Hollywood for a decade and like meeting with development people, people who are people whose jobs at studios is to like to meet with writers and be like, "Hey, what what are your ideas for a movie or TV show?" You know, sometimes those people have a creative background. Sometimes they know what they're talking about in tor- terms of writing and story structure. But more times than not, they're saying, you know, based on our research, audiences are looking for Ted Lasso, or audiences are looking for the new Wednesday on Netflix. They're mm-hmm. they're reacting solely to what the market is dictating, and don't push for original ideas or original stories or you know yeah. stories from non-white perspectives because. They're just assessing risk, and that's so limiting in the way that our media is created. Is if like you're just looking at numbers and you're like, well, this is the least risky investment for us, then it's obviously going to push to the front like less interesting, less dynamic, less uh, varied stories. So yeah, so I so I say it's the market, and but I mean that in a pejorative sense. I'm not yeah, saying of like, course. and I think in here there's also a bigger question of. I would even push to say, like, what does a, what is it that a Hollywood career when we even say Hollywood, you know, like what does a quote unquote mainstream career mean or look like or why is that even what's desirable if it's about and I, this is just me talking because I have this conversation with myself all the time, particularly as an artist. And I found it like when that was the carrot, when that was the dream, it was inherently uncreative and restraining <laughs> And had like a chokehold on me because I remember from very early on recognize like the calling to be an artist had nothing to do with the mainstream part of it or the, the even the amount of uh, visibility you would get. Let's let's say it's the visibility that you are seeking with it and you being the me, you, you know, the proverbial you that you're seeking from all of that is like. I remember early on being like, well, in order to do the thing I love, I guess I have to get famous because like they only seem to be giving handing over careers to those people, you know, the roles that I would want to play or this that I would want to play. And breaking free from that model, I think, is starting to recognize like you really do have to build it for yourself. And what's remarkable is you see people build it for themselves. You see the Michaela Coles, you see the Phoebe Waller-Bridges, you see people who just were like, I had a story I wanted to tell and I built it and I built the audience around it. And then Hollywood will come in and be like, yeah, we can make this mainstream. But that's just Mm -hmm. because like you were saying, they're like, oh, I see there's a market that surrounds you. And then, of course, as we watch those courageous creators, like what their sort of task at hand becomes is how do they hold on and maintain alliance to an alignment with their original creative impulses. And and I think we can watch versions of that where it's really 
phenomenal like a Michaela Cole or or watch where it falls apart. Um, so I don't know if that I feel like it just kind of there's in inside of there is like why why do we care about Hollywood moving away? What about building stuff outside of it? And to that, I would also say there's a lot of the models that are starting like Means TV doing its own cooperative structure and being worker owned or I want to put in a plug for Art Co-op, who is a network of artists and groups that make the solidarity economy irresistible. That's their that's their line. But they have a really great, and this might be good for you, Gavin. I started to take it and I loved it. They have on here, they have a class about the solidarity economy for artists, particularly. Ooh. Really cool stuff there. So I would say also looking outside of, like I think part of it would be also like stop trying to stop change Hollywood and trying to make something more something outside of it that becomes the marketable choice that becomes what if we're sticking to the market idea or that the old that kind of market crashes but it becomes like where people want to go because it's irresistible yes that is such a that's such a good way of putting it you know i often use this example for you know when i'm like talking to like family members or whatever about socialism and how like a cooperative structure works and i you know the, the example i use is like okay imagine you're you know getting your first job uh, let's say it's a restaurant job, whatever, any industry. Um, over on one side is a restaurant that's owned by one person. They keep all of the profits. Everyone works for them, and they just get a wage. And then over here is a restaurant where every employee owns a piece of the restaurant. You share all the profits. You share, you know, everyone has their jobs, but everyone votes democratically on how the restaurant is run. Which one would you want to work in? And people are often like, I mean, I guess like, when you put it that way, like the one where I get to own stuff and share in profits and have a say in how it's run. So I think that's so important is just these these structures need to be built in order for people to see how they work and the value in them and then making them irresistible in that way. Um, so thank you, Gavin. Next question. Chelsea asks, how do you think working as actors has affected both of your outlooks about the entertainment industry? Oof. <laughs> um. I could take this first uh, yeah. if you if you want to simmer on it. I mean, we've talked about it before, but we went to theater school where all we were doing was practicing our craft for the for the love and the passion of it and the enjoyment of it and to to stretch ourselves and grow ourselves as artists. And then as soon as you as, at least for me, as soon as I made the transition to then being an actor and writer in Hollywood, I immediately felt like I needed to commodify myself. But I didn't have the terminology for that. I didn't know what what it was, I just know that it felt like shitty that I had to sell myself constantly and I hated it. And then like everything, like you said earlier, like, you know, as a writer, it really inhibited my sense of creativity because at a certain point I stopped creating stuff that I just wanted to make and stuff that I and, and started making stuff that I thought people wanted to see from me or see or things that would be more marketable or saleable because that was the way into actually getting a career. And those were some of the most creatively stifling moments of my creative career and then and then it was the times that i was just like fuck it i'm just gonna do this thing for me that i actually ended up having the most <laughs> career success and then ultimately for me you know i i decided like look i love creating i love being an artist i love making stuff but like i don't need to i don't need to prove myself in the ecosystem of hollywood and get the quote-unquote job you know like the big job that like gets you in the club and allows you to quit your day jobs because I was trying to appease an industry or break into an industry that didn't, that doesn't honestly have a lot of value or respect for 
creatives, to be totally bluntly. And I have a very cynical view of Hollywood uh, for a lot of those reasons. It is, at the end of the day, it is a business and they are in the business of making money. And unless you have figured out a way to make them money, then you're not gonna have a ton of opportunities in Hollywood. So that was that was kind of my experience. Yeah, I don't know. What's coming to mind is just, I, I feel so privileged this doesn't contradict, I think, what you were saying about the Hollywood economy. But like, I know you probably feel this way, too. Like, I think it's a deep privilege to be an actor. And we wouldn't be talking about movies, you know, weekly if we didn't both feel this way. Like, I just think it's such an unbelievable craft. The craft of stepping into a human experience and using your body and your voice and your mind and your emotional life to give an audience an opportunity to practice their own humanity in order mm -hmm. in order to maybe be feel new things be radicalized themselves into healing or new ways of thinking or being i just think it's a total privilege and i also feel that the economy of acting the economy of hollywood i'm not going to say acting but the economy of hollywood as it exists could easily um steal that very noble privilege and i personally found moving back to new york it was like um Maybe that's because there's just closer to the stage. Like I found like a restored sense of like, this is why I love doing what I love doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm motivated and inspired by the idea that like not being inside the Hollywood economy doesn't necessarily mean you're not acting or you're not an actor, that there are so many ways to practice this craft. And I guess it's also top of mind as we're just at this place of recognizing like there's going to be a, such a shift in what it means to quote unquote work in because of AI and work as an actor and just how how the economy of acting has changed so drastically where you you know we've said this before you used to be able to be like a working actor and now you can do just as much labor as an actor and still have to have other jobs because of the because of streaming and now because of AI I guess that is how I mean, was the original question was like, how does that affect our outlook on the entertainment industry? It just makes me feel both hopeful and sad. I think that's totally fair. And you're absolutely right. It's completely different than working. Being a working actor is completely different than how it used to be. I remember the the first uh, national commercial I booked, which is like that's a de that's a decent paycheck for an actor. I remember one of the older actors on set was like, what are you guys going to do with your commercial money? I think I'm going to buy another house. Every time I book a national, I just buy another house. I mean, but he was talking about like an economy that didn't exist anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, that's mm -hmm. fucking incredible that that used to be how it worked. Fun fact about both Frank and I's actors. I, we both have screen tested for <laughs> Young and the Restless. That is. <laughs> yes, we have. Yes, we have. That I, I just couldn't take it seriously i just was like can i just be goofy and they're like no be sexy and i was like i don't know how to do that that is so <laughs> just like i just want to be goofy i got very 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 close to booking that and i remember knowing like this doesn't feel aligned but also like it's just what of being like wow what would my life would be so i mean i think i a lot to say like the contract was awful in terms of just money and like what it would you know sure just like what it would mean for one's life. And yet, because of the economy, these are the choices actors have to make all the time. Mm -hmm. All right, our next question. Uh, Jared asks, what is the best book on critical film analysis slash theory for someone just getting into it? 
I actually, I can't, no books come to mind specifically about like critical film theory. I've, I've started reading a couple of the Harlan Ellison and Neil Postman essays that Josh Olson recommended on our network episode in, in terms of media criticism and TV criticism. But whenever I'm looking for analysis or theory on a movie, especially if we're researching it, I'll just, honestly, I'll just Google search, you know, Ants movie anti-capitalism or Ants movie socialism and just kind of see what comes up. I find that there's a lot of good analysis just on the internet um, in essay form or in long read form. Um, but I don't have any specific books like about like critical film theory. So, yeah, one that a lot of people look at for media is Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher, not specifically about film, but talks a lot about film. Some of the um, movies that we talked about already, like Children of Men, I think we reference a lot of Mark Fisher in that conversation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I th I'd say the same, not necessarily. I think what's fun about the podcast is sometimes reading a book like uh, the one that I was reading about. Uh, mutual aid, but then being able to find, you know, you're reading something and then you're seeing something in a movie and it's sort of connective tissue there. Mm -hmm. There's another great book I just started that our guest Chris Myers had recommended a while back called Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else by Olufemi Otai, I hope I'm saying their name right, Taiwo. And that also is like, I, you know, things about, generally I guess it's stuff of books about media in general, mm -hmm. I mean, because that's all, you know, then you start to really get into the identi identity politics of media. And yeah, I can't, I also can't think of a specific one about film. But if you find one, please, or if you know listeners, please write them in. We're always into listening to more, reading more stuff. Okay. Ben asks, are you going to do an episode on Andor? Wow, Ben, a person after my own heart. That it's it's tough. Andor is a TV series. For those that don't know, it's a it's a it's set in the Star Wars universe. It's I think ten episodes. So yeah, I guess there's just some practical questions of you know we, having to watch ten hours of something just to do an episode on it. So that's a little tough. Although I do I have had the the thought of doing Andor as maybe as like a premium mini series or something. But it's I mean I've talked to you about Andor. It's unbelievable and it's filled with contradictions because it's like an unbelievable story about revolution and like what revolutions entail on a like on a granular level and like revolutionary theory and revolutionary le leaders and and radicalization and uh, fucking imperialism and fascism and all of these things meanwhile it is packaged in the star wars universe and produced by the walt disney corporation so yeah. you know so it's like amazing that this story was shoehorned by this giant corporate media conglomerate and that's where a book like elite capture how the powerful took over identity politics and everything else comes in really helpful <laughs> to explain yes. all of that <laughs> so ben no immediate plans but i would love to do something on andor at some point maybe when it comes back at the end of next year we can do something all right friend of the pod harvey jk asks what deceased figure from the 20th century would you most like to have on the podcast to discuss a film? And what film would you want him or her to discuss with you? I have mine. I'll jump in. And while on the surface, they, this might seem like a basic answer, it is not because I am the all-time fan and she's a real radical. I'm talking Marilyn Monroe. I would Ooh. love to have her on the pod. For anyone who doesn't really know much about her past being, you know, one of the most famous 
movie stars, women in the world. She was also deeply radical, came from working class background, had really radical politics. I didn't know this, but in the 60s, she I just found this out. She became a founding member of the Hollywood branch of the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy. She was okay. pro-Castro. She was like, even on the set of like All About Eve, she was warned not, know any of this. not to be seen by studio executives reading radical books. Oh, yeah. She was deeply radical. There's like also some thoughts about, you know, how that may have possibly had to do with how she passed, you know. Um Ooh. But she was, yeah, she was in the, and this came to mind too because we started the conversation about the current sort of mirroring of this blacklist. She was never blacklisted, but definitely threatened and definitely around a lot of folks who were threatened or were blacklisted. And she was just, I think, badass for that. And like definitely today, you know, would be fired. Would be let go of a picture too, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, canceled. So I would definitely like. I'd love to have Marilyn on. And in terms of the movie, I think um, some like it hot would be a great film to discuss. Of course, there's like a lot that that ha- I would be really curious too about where she probably would her thoughts and growth on sort of the trans rights issues of all with that film, and then they sure. I think redid that as a music. There'd be a lot to discuss. It's also, I love her in that movie. That's a great answer. And I did not know any about, I did not know any of that stuff about Meryl Monroe. So thank you for uh, educating me. My answer, um, I, and this is maybe like a little selfish, but I would really love to speak with, with David Graeber, who passed away only a few years ago in 2020. Um, mm. David Graeber was uh, an anthropologist and uh, an anarchist theorist. His, some of his favorite books are Bullshit Jobs and The Dawn of Everything. Uh, a really brilliant, wonderful, charming, funny, sweet theorist and, you know, like a philosopher in some ways. And you've probably, if you've never seen any clips of David Graeber speaking, I highly recommend it, you know, either on YouTube or TikTok or wherever. But he just has such a, he has such a mild and plain way of, putting these really large concepts in very, very common sense ways. And you like, when you hear him talk, it's like almost impossible to disagree with him about anything. Mm. He's just, and just like the way he speaks about these ideas. And in terms, and so, and he's just one of my favorite uh, speakers, writers, and would just, would absolutely love the, con- the, the chance to speak with him. In terms of movies, I don't know, maybe something about like society, something, something big. Uh, oh, maybe, you know, it's a really great, movie or it's not a great movie it's an okay movie but it has a great premise is the film elysium uh Mm. with matt damon which we've we've talked about maybe off mic before but this uh this matt damon sci-fi action movie from maybe like a decade ago about the this dystopian future where earth is just garbage planet like you Mm. know just completely covered in garbage no food, you know, no crops, climate change has ravaged it. And then it's like everyone, all the poor people live on Earth, but all of the rich people live in Elysium, which is a satellite that orbits Earth, has a lot to say about class and elitism and then also the future and climate change and everything. Something broad scale and something that we're, we, he could really apply a large societal analysis. That would be something I'd want to talk with David Graeber about. That's a good one. Okay, so our next question comes from Allison. What has been the most surprising analysis since the start of the podcast? And do you now engage in Marxist analysis in every movie you watch? Hmm. Ooh, 
Great question. Most surprising? Mine was Dude, Where's My Car? I was going to say the same thing. (laughs) Mainly because I had no idea where our guest, Devin Young, was going to take the conversation. And I was just like, it it was one of those situations where it was like, whoa, I've literally never thought about it this way before. Yeah. And I think it expanded how I like to look for different theories now, you know, different analysis now that what that was, was like, here's a way to sort of reappropriate something that could was like, is clearly very harmful in the way that so many movies from that time were. And it's not denying that. But it's also like, here's a fun way to particularly be like, here's like the queer analysis, like this is actually like pro Mm -hmm. all the things that like on the surface, it might not be and it was really fun. And now I like to look at movies like what else could be in here? Yeah, just this is what I don't know. Sometimes I think films, when we're watching them, I'm like, here's something that really impacted how I grew up. And like, I want I'm interested in looking at that lens. And like, how did it shape my generation or this gener or this particular generation and others? Yeah, it's fun to look maybe too deep <laughs> in. I like I love getting to look at films through this lens because it like, it's just a totally different way of engaging with entertainment because I can I can and to answer like the the do I always analyze films like this now like it in varying degrees I think I just have a more I, I'm just more critical now and, and not just of films I'm critical of everything that I ingest politics media or otherwise but sometimes you know I turn it off and I'm, I'm like I'm just gonna try to like lay back and watch this in an, as, as pure entertainment but it's just kind of like always on another really surprising one I just wanted to mention was You've Got Mail uh, simply because I hadn't seen it in such a long time yeah. and rewatching it, I was just like, this is this is such a horrific movie. The way that Tom Hanks's character treats Meg Ryan's character is really yeah. shocking. All right. And our final question comes from... And wait, the last oh. part of that question was, do you engage in Marxist analysis in every movie you watch? I guess we sort of answered it. No, not always. But if it comes up, it comes up, I would say. All right. And final question. A friend of the show, Branson Reese, who did our Clerks episode with us, wrote, what's a film you love despite its dog shit politics? And you can't say On the Waterfront. (laughs) I honestly don't remember a ton about On the Waterfront. I haven't seen that since I... Oh, we should do it on the pod. It's a great film. I, I know it's a great film. I just I don't remember it at all. Okay. As soon as I read this question, I immediately had my answer. What is it? It's it's so, it's so embarrassing. One of my favorite movies is I think it's from like 1998, 1999, the comedy Basketball starring <laughs> Trey of Parker course. and Matt Stone, the creators of South Park. It was right when South Park was super hot and Hollywood was like, South Park is huge. You guys should be the leads of a movie. And it's a movie about a fake sport called Basketball, which merges baseball and basketball together. I haven't rewatched it in a while. But just in my memory, I know there's a ton of misogynistic jokes. There's a ton of sexism. There's a ton of homophobic jokes. There's a ton of there's maybe some like decent stuff about how, uh, like, I don't know, business moguls co-opt sports or whatever. But if I put that movie on with my partner, we'd get like 10 minutes into it. And she'd be like, I can't fucking watch this. This is awful. (laughs) Um, And I would be like, you're right. You're right. A lot of this is completely unacceptable. But you know what? That's still in my heart. I'm like, that's one of my favorite movies. You know, there's a lot of terrible stuff yeah. in that movie, but like, I'm sure if I watched it, I would still get a kick out of the stuff that wasn't extremely problematic or offensive. Well, I'm going to say, I mean, I can't think of a mo- the thing that popped into my mind that like just addresses this. It's not a movie, but like, um, and if you listen to our Josh Olsen episode, you'll know why this is funny. Like, I stand the West Wing. Ooh, I love the West Wing. 
the worst, the worst <laughs> politics. Oh. I did not wait. I did not know that you actually like loved the West Wing. I love everything. What's his face? Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, like I don't think you could get more. I mean, wow. Yeah, I love Aaron Sorkin. Love. Damn, this is a good answer for this because he does have dog. He does have dog shit politics. And I, any like, if Aaron Sorkin has a freaking show, I am eating it up, watching it <laughs> twice. Like the pace, the and I'm aware, like Patty Chayefsky, yeah, probably a better rep. Like I love it. And then I'd say movie, maybe. I don't know if this is dog shit policy. Actually, as I thought about it, I was like, we should do it. It's just like, I love a, I love anything that's like that 80s cell phone rich. You know what I'm talking about? That uh, 80s aesthetic, that Diet Coke got a cell phone. Very Ghostbusters, but I like the extreme, like a Die Hard in a way. But The Family Man with Nick Cage, that is like one of my favorite comedy oh, movies. Yeah. And it is not got good politics, but it would be really good to talk about. Um, we really, we should actually, we have to do that on the pod. That's like the that's the movie where Nick Cage is like a successful executive and then wakes up and he's and he like makes a wish that he's like, well, I wonder what it'd been like if I'd stayed together with my girlfriend. And then it's like he wakes up and he's got a family and it's like a, it's like an alternate reality. Or it's an alternate yeah, timeline. Yeah, Don Cheadle kind of plays like the magic black. It's like got all the terrible Ooh. tropes. He's like the magic black man who comes in. It's fucking directed by Brett Ratner. Oh, God. It's oh, adapted. Okay. Actually, it's like adapted from It's a Wonderful Life. So it's just like, and it's Nick Cage. It's just like, it's gross. It's cringe. But I love it. I That'd love it because it's just got that. I like that vibe of like, yeah, like Wall Street, drinking Cokes, making money. Like there should be a name for it. Like, you know, like, we should need a word for that. Tinsel. Like to me, that's like tinsel. Okay. Yeah. Just like shiny and fake. Just like shiny and yes. fake. Yes. And I love Probably tinsel. causes cancer. Probably gonna kill your dog or your cat, you know. Mm -hmm. All right, that's uh, that is all of the questions. Thank you again for, to everyone who wrote in. I was I, I was pleasantly surprised to see we got such a nice response. Yeah, this was really fun. I didn't know of this concept of mailbag until until now. Yeah, I kept pitching mailbag episode to Rivka, and she kept being like, "Okay, I don't know what that is. I don't have any context for that." Yeah. <laughs> we will be back next week with a new movie episode. We will be watching Ben Stiller's 2001 comedy Zoolander. But in the meantime, if you want to support the show, you can go to nvcpod.com to become a supporter that gives you access to our premium episodes. Leave a rating review, help us out uh, on the podcast player, follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And other than that, we will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.